Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, Chief of Staff turned Executive Leadership Coach. In this series, we dive into the role of Chief of Staff, exploring how it can be a game changer and pivotal player on your leadership team. You'll get a backstage pass and learn about the different aspects of the role and what it takes to excel in it. We'll hear from some incredible guests who have firsthand experience serving as Chief of Staff or collaborating with one on their team. And don't forget, the Chief of Staff isn't just a title or person, it represents a leadership philosophy. Leveraging leadership is all about finding your points of greatest influence and leveraging them to better serve those around you. Ed, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Emily. How are you? I'm doing well. So far, so good. The week, the week is early yet, but we're we're off to a good start. I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. You're our first military chief of staff guest, so I think it'll be exciting for people to hear about uh, your background and experience. So thank you for being on. Well, thank you. I hope I can do it justice. Uh, <laughs> so many people have done the job before to have me come on and, and try to explain what a military chief of staff does is a little bit of pressure. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll see how it all comes out. Being a Marine, I think you're going to rise to the occasion and and do just fine. So <laughs> we'll we'll go into it. But you you've just retired actually from a 30 year I, uh, I did career in the Marines. And just going back to the beginning for a second, I think you were mm-hmm. 17 when you went into ROTC, and that's how you got started. Is that is that right? Yes. So that officially takes us back 34 years. Uh, but those four years at uh, university don't officially counteractive duty time. Uh, so some active duty, uh, like the six weeks of officer candidate school. But I didn't actually start as an officer until May 16th or so uh, my active duty time was 29 years, six months and 15 days. We'll just round that to 30. You know, to the day, years. my God. The government knows today. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. The government knows today. And then what, just out of curiosity, what had you interested in joining the Marines? Was it always the Marines or was it the military in well, general? What? It was It was always the military, uh, but out of the services, the Marine Corps to me was, uh, was the most interesting. Um, my desire was to be a part of history, uh, to see how the world actually works as a lover of history and cultures and geography. So I wanted to go see it. And that's what Marines do. Marines go and see the world as it actually is. Yeah. And so uh, that was a big part of it. My father was a Marine, but only for three years. Uh, so I never knew that. It was never a big part of my life. And like so many Marine fathers of that age, go in the military, go in the Air Force. Um, you know, And then they make some joke about golf clubs or golf courses and officers clubs and stuff. But that's not what I want. I wanted to go into the Marine Corps and, and live the unusual life. Okay. What traits make a good Marine? What do you think made you excel at being a, at being a Marine? Well, you got to have self-confidence. Uh, you got to be, you know, to be held to a higher standard. You've got to want to be part of something different. You've got to be able to function as part of a team. Uh, and you got to love the people you're with. You're, you're not going to succeed in the Marine Corps if you don't love the idea of what you're doing, if you don't love the values that it represents, and if you don't love the people that you're leading and working with. If you're just doing, those people that are just doing it for the college money, Mm. we're not not the service for them. 
Yep. All right. So the Marines are elite. I, I know this because I actually, my first interaction with the Marine, my dad's work colleague was a retired Marine colonel, or I should say Marine colonel. Mm-hmm. You're never retired from the Marines. Um, but he was he was in the Marines and he was older by that point. But I had a fascination with with military and I loved the uniforms and I like learning about the ranks and who saluted who and you know I would, I would I would quiz him with like if a colonel and colonel meet who salutes first and all that kind of stuff and he knew my love of the marines which I still don't know the answer to by the way so you might have to help me out later um but he knew my love of the marines and he took us to the, one of the rifle drill parades where they have a whole bunch of soldiers and they're like flipping rifles in unison and they're catching them without looking and doing different uh, different drills there. And I remember being just so impressed. How do they do that? How do they do that? And he was sitting right next to me explaining, you know, and this is an elite unit. You have to be six one, uh, six foot to six one, and you have to train for hours and hours and hours. And those are real uh, sharp bayonets they have on the on the ends mm-hmm. of their rifles. So I just remember that was my first kind of impression of Marines. Like, oh my gosh, these are so exact and so precise and just so impressive. Right. There's there's that's the silent drill platoon, uh, and that's something that it, it is a showpiece deliberately to give exactly that reaction. Everyone who sees it, we give that image out there. Marine uh, Corps, uh, we hold very tightly to the legacy uh, of the the respect in which just like you described, so many people hold us, is due to the efforts of every Marine that came before us. And so we now have a legacy to uphold that, to uphold that standard, that appearance, the way the uniform fits, uh, the absence of facial hair while on active duty. So this is a new thing. All retirees essentially do it in the first couple of weeks. So we'll see if it stays. Uh, but it's it's a standard. It's the, it's the notion that Marines don't do that. So uh, I was fortunate to be part of an exceptional group. And then just so I know, when a colonel, when two colonels do meet, who does salute? For they salute each other? Nobody. Oh, nobody salutes. No. Same ranks, same ranks don't salute. Okay. Okay. I, this is, this podcast is a win for me already. So now and, and so that you know, when you see it in the movies and stuff, Marines don't salute without covers. We call cover, we call hats covers. Yep. So we don't salute without a cover and we don't wear a cover indoors unless you're on duty or armed. Oh, okay. These are good, good ground rules to be aware of. Yeah. Excellent. So I know you speak Arabic and I think you speak it conversationally now, but when you were in the Middle East, you, did you speak it fluently or were you um, conversational? Yes. I would say that. So one of the things that uh, I was selected to do in the Marine Corps after about uh, six years of service, I got selected to be a Marine Corps foreign area officer. Uh, And at the time, that was a three and a half year training pipeline. So the first year was to get my degree in Middle East studies. The next year and a half was study in modern standard Arabic all day, every day at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, uh, several hours of homework every night, which is mentally the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, and at the end of that, you can speak Arabic or I could speak Arabic. Um, someone who doesn't know Arabic would say, wow, he's fluent. Uh, but once you've studied a language that long, the notion of fluency takes on a completely different meaning. Uh, but the last part of the program was to send me for a year to just travel the Middle East uh, by myself, mostly, uh, and learn what the reality was like. So 
I went straight from that to uh, combat in Fallujah uh, and in Ramadi in 2004 and 2005. And every day I was interacting with the Iraqis. So by the end of that time period, I was I was pretty fluent. If you would have met me in 2005, yes, I was very fluent. I could do meetings. I could shout down crowds. I could do things like that. I do negotiations. Um, but then I haven't used it sure. all that much since then. So uh, I was a naval attache for three years to the uh, Sultan of Oman. Uh, but there, most people you needed to speak to spoke English. So I only had to, only had to use it occasionally uh, when you're outside of the capital. But um, all those experiences, all those different things, I think were pretty important uh, in helping me to be the chief of staff that I believe I was. Yeah. So before you became chief of staff, because I definitely want to get to that, mm-hmm. before that, what tour of duty or assignment would you say you learned the most from? They were all so wildly different, Emily. That was, um, so that was, that's a tough one. And I don't know that I can really answer it because I learned huge amounts of different things at each one. Uh, the tours when I was going to Iraq from 2004 to 2008, I learned a lot about how the world works. I learned a lot about how do governments make decisions. Uh, being an attache, I got to see what was international diplomacy like? How does an embassy function? How do ambassadors speak to each other? when they're in a small group? How do governments actually interact uh, when they're in, a, in those formal settings and informal settings? I had a time where for three years, I oversaw all intelligence and information systems for U.S. Special Operations Command. So it was a little north of $3 billion a year worth of stuff that I was dealing with. And I, I learned, well, how does acquisitions, how does procurement, and how does the, the budget, what we call the POM, uh, how does the budget actually work and what's the site it's on um you know and then it, going to be the chief of staff at the recruit depot um i had to learn all about how do we actually recruit young people into the marine pool how do we train them how do we make sure the facilities all function uh, how does the system work and it's it's amazingly complex yeah i'm sure it is just before i forget did you actually meet the sultan of no i got into the closest I got was uh, was taken, I think it was the commander of U.S. Central Command uh, for a meeting to one of his palaces. So I got to the outer to the outer room, uh, waiting room, you know, inside. But only the principals uh, went okay. in. Okay. So my regular contacts were with the commander of the Omani Navy, their Coast Guard, folks like that. But you were interacting with ambassadors, as you say, and I think, oh, yeah. I think visiting, you know, like congressmen and senators and things to the, mm-hmm. to the region. Yes. Sure. Whenever they wanted to come in and say, well, what's the state of the relationship between, you know, the, the Omanis and the United States? Well, then you'd sit down knee to knee and you'd explain to them, this is what's really happening. And, uh, this is what's going on and here's kind of how they see the world. So you can prep them for their interactions. Okay. So then you become chief of staff and there's so much to dig into here, but at a high level, can you just say, you know, who your principal was, what your general scope of responsibility was in that role? Sure. So, um, when I got pulled into the role of chief of staff at, uh, it was for Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego and the Western Recruiting Region. Now what that means, and we just call that MCRD. Okay. What that means is uh, there's a one-star general, a brigadier general that is the commander, the CEO. Okay. And that CEO then 
has a chief of staff, and that chief of staff in that role is a little unique because you also serve as the deputy commander. Whenever the commanding general is not present, is not able to respond to issues and concerns, you you take the helm. And so then you've got a broad staff uh, beyond that. What we're responsible for is uh, recruiting young people to be Marines, both enlisted and officers, from Okinawa, Japan in the West, all the way to the Mississippi River, plus Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin in the East. Small territory. So yeah. a small territory. So that's 51% of the U.S. population. Uh, so all the recruiters, all the infrastructure for those recruiters, uh, we own all of that in the Western recruiting region. Uh, and then we will bring in about 18,000 young people a year from that territory. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll bring them to San Diego. And once they get to San Diego, the Marine Corps boot camp, if you've ever flown into San Diego airport, you'll see it's, it shares a fence with the airport, which surprises a lot of people. Uh, but the main part of boot camp is their airport where they'll do their 13 weeks of basic training. They'll do four weeks up at a, we have a portion of our base at Camp Pendleton where we do field training in the rifle range. Uh, but we own those facilities. We own all the training responsibilities. And then we also are responsible for all the, the civilian workers, the chow halls, the facilities, the infrastructure, the security force, uh, all the family support stuff. So all of those things come together. And as the chief of staff, then you are uh, that link between the commanding general and everybody else on the staff. Now, I've seen your in your podcast, you've talked a lot about uh, how the role of the chief of staff is a little unique and a little different. One of the things I point out with the military, or say with the Marine Corps, you're not going to be a chief of staff before you're a colonel, okay? And okay. you're not going to be, you're not going to make colonel in the Marine Corps until you've had 23 years, roughly, okay, so it's tied of to service as an officer. It's tied to tenure and then generally seniority on the staff. So to see a chief of staff that with less than 25 years would be, it, it can happen, but it's unusual because usually you're the most senior or tied for most senior okay. officer on the staff. Okay. So it's a little bit different than you may see in the corporate world. Um, but when I walked into the job, I had no experience in recruiting and I had no experience for training. Okay. I just been on a ton of staffs. I've been in a lot of very different staffs with different services. Um, and so I had some idea of what right looked like. And so as the chief, you're not responsible for a whole lot directly. You don't own <laughs> operations. You don't own. Surprise, just, surprise, yes. You, know, you don't own recruiting, but you're keeping an eye on all of it because if the, the general, the, he, he can't. Uh, they can't be everywhere all at once. So to keep an eye on everything and figure out what were the priorities, where does the energy need to be placed in the system, uh, what coordination needs to get done, that was that was really the, the key part of it all. It's so interesting because as I hear you describe that, yes, the apparatus is different, certainly in a military context, but there's so much that's the same as other mm -hmm. chiefs of staff. For instance, you had a dual role. Um, you proxy for your principal. You have to use your influence, not direct authority. You're, you have to have a 
holistic view of the organization or the or the um, marine unit you're in. So just to dig into a few of those things. Mm-hmm. So when you say the general was busy and I had to hold down the fort when he was when he was away, what did that what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, what that means is uh, in our particular case, because of the state of recruiting, uh, the way it's been the last couple of years, it's been a challenge, and that takes up most of their time and attention. So uh, our general is usually gone about 70% of the time. Oh, wow. Now, much of that time, they're in contact. You can reach them on the phone. You can They're reading their emails. Uh, sometimes they're going to do a uh, video teleconference on the road. Uh, so I would differentiate. There's times when the general is not immediately available which is going to be, they're out all day with recruiters, so they're not going to be able to tend to things to the evening. So you make your decisions, you take actions on their behalf that are appropriate uh, at the appropriate level. They don't need to wait necessarily for them to be free that night. Um, And then there's those things when, let's say, they are so uh, bold as to take leave and go spend (laughs) some time with their family, right? So they go on vacation, uh, General's not usually going to answer emails and You're phone up. calls and stuff. Yeah, when they're they're in Europe. So on those cases, you're going to step forward and you're going to take most actions. There are very very few specific actions generally tied to legal things, court martials, stuff like that that I would not act on because that's something that only the general can do. But most things you'd act uh, just like they do. Gotcha. And then. Did you know? So how do you how do you become a chief of staff? Is that something you apply for, like anything else? Is that something you get selected for? Is that how does that work? Uh, it's it's something that you get selected for, and uh, they're looking for different things. A lot of times with the Marine Corps, uh, a chief of staff is, is oftentimes, but not always, is oftentimes what we call a twilight tour. It's the last thing you're going to do before you retire. Um, for some people, it's the last thing they do before they get selected for general officer, um, and continue to serve, but it's, it's one of those very senior billets and the generals that are in charge have a decent amount of say in who is going to be their chief of staff. So they may reach out and say specifically, I want this person, uh, that didn't happen in my case. I took over, uh, when I stepped into the job. The general that I was supporting, that I was working for, he took over on the exact same day. Oh, wow. So we replaced the chief of staff and the CEO on the same day. Um, and we had never met before. Oh, uh, but he he was sent my bio. I'm sure he asked around to get some uh, information on me and some references as to what was I like. Uh, and then we just took off running. And uh, when we both got comfortable in the position, which took a few months, probably, where we both were, where we could, you know, read each other's meanings and communicate uh, implicitly. When we got to that point, that's when really you can start doing more on behalf of your senior. You know, you can take, you're more confident making the decisions because you know how they would make them. Now, had, and, and they trust you. And had he had a chief of staff before or was this his first? He had. He he had for about uh, two years. Okay. At his previous his previous command. So he was familiar with that role in general, and yes. and then he and he certainly he more. certainly would have 
throughout his career would have worked with chiefs of staff okay. uh, in various staff positions. Uh, I don't believe he was ever a chief of staff, but then he had had one working for him for the two years uh, before he came to San Diego. Okay. But he knew what to do with that role because I have so many CEOs in business who think they want a chief of staff, who kind of maybe need a chief of staff and they get one and then they don't know how to use, how to utilize that role. So it sounds like um, he was very familiar with yeah. that role. How in the you... military context, you you would know coming in. Okay. Um, it's just a matter of what style of chief of staff is yeah. right for you. Okay. How did So how did you go about building a relationship, building up trusts, figuring out each other's work styles? You said it took a few months, which is which is similar to business, but how did you kind of, those first 90 days, how did you build that up with this brand new principal you had never met? Well, I think a lot of it comes from the, uh, for us, the end of day discussions or the discussions after a meeting. Um, when you would both observe the same thing and then everyone else would leave and he may turn around and just say, hey, Ed, wh what was going on there? And, you know, it's, I think he's looking for, did I see things different than he saw? Did I hear something different? Do I have more context? Uh, am I able to say, hey, sure, uh, this person was a little out of it today, but they're going through some stuff. I happen to know that their child is, if something's happened or there's something going on in their personal life, they can say, I know they don't have full attention on this. Uh, they were nervous that they weren't prepared coming in. I already knew that. We'll get it fixed and we'll get the, you know, the report will come in later. Whatever it is, you've got to demonstrate over time that you, you're you going to be frank, you're going to be honest, that you do know what's going on outside of what he's seeing, um, and that you've got a pulse of things on the stack. Um, by the same token, from the other way around, it's what does the boss have questions about? Where are their gaps? Where do they think they need the most assistance? How do they seem to understand things? How do they digest information? And then make sure that I take that information and you've got to share it with everybody else and say, hey, you're presenting all this data to the boss. And it's not, it, it doesn't mean anything in the context you're putting it in. The data is good, but let's change the way we're going to present it. And the way we're going to present it is more streamlined. It's uh, more visual, what, whatever it is, uh, or are they somebody who just loves spreadsheets and they want to go through <laughs> and do the analysis themselves. I think those people exist somewhere. Uh, but it's it's over time, there's the little questions that happen and the little discussions that happen where um, if, if you never got deeply honest, if you didn't get introspective and, and, and have the guts to say, um, hey, sir, you know, you said that thing in a meeting earlier today. Um, I don't think it was received at all the way you meant it. And I could see some of the body language shifting in the chairs on the staff. I don't think people received that correctly. I think we might want to do a reattack and maybe we, we describe it a different way. Um, so you've got to be able to speak truth to power or you really have no value. Hi, Emily here. I just wanted to take 10 seconds to highlight the power of one-on-one -on -one coaching at nextlevel.coach. Get the tools for success and leave each session feeling refreshed and refocused. And at what point were you able to do that? I mean, 
you know, maybe day one, if something drastic, drastic happens, you have to say something. But is that something you build over time where you can have, you know, sir, sure. I don't think that landed how you wanted it to. We need to do it again. Well, I think it, it's a little bit of both. There, there are those things that certainly, you know, you got to call a spade a spade when it, yeah. when it comes. Hopefully you still have a position the next day. But over time, your ability of when do you need to do that? When is your advice needed and wanted? That becomes more and more clear. You have described the chief of staff as the first among peers. So is that, how do you, how do you see that role? Well, well I would say that uh, when I'm, as, as I'm learning more about the corporate space uh, and talking to friends that are, they're at, they're out in it, I see oftentimes, and I've heard you mention some of your podcasts, chief of staff can be a stepping stone. That you go from a chief of staff position and you want to be a CFO or a COO or something along those lines. Uh, in our context, you are going to be leading other colonels and lieutenant colonels. As a chief and, of staff. And GS-15 civilians who are generally retired colonels. Um, so you're going to have a bunch of people with the same amount of experience or similar amount of experience as you. But they've got a more specialized focus. They are the operations officer. They are the finance guy. They're the uh, the logistics gal, and they've got their area that they're running. Uh, like for instance, in, in our organization, we got up. We would fluctuate in numbers based on the number of recruits we had. Uh, but at any time, we could get up to about eleven thousand folks uh, in the organization, and uh, of those, we'd have. 600 civilians, uh, and then the rest would be uh, Marines and sailors. But we had 11 colonels, to include myself, in that whole organization. Six of them were commanders. Okay, so they owned a recruiting territory. They owned uh, the responsibility for conducting boot camp, or they owned uh, the responsibility for doing field training. And so they have their areas. Those commanders don't work for me. Okay. I have no, I don't really have influence over them unless I'm acting in the deputy commander role. But the role is, or the job is, to work as that, that interface between the two levels, right? Uh, and I would say the same, to a different degree though, the same goes with those operations and logistics officers and stuff that have their roles. They don't directly have to work for me or through me, but they all use you as a sounding. You can yes. build trust with them. The commanders will call you before they have a meeting with the CEO and say, hey, I got this thing I have to bring into the boss. Here's how I'm thinking I want to approach it. What, is that going to work? Mm. And then you might say, I, I wouldn't phrase it that way. Frame it I would change, yeah. frame it a little bit differently because what you don't know is somebody else just came in and said X, Y, Z, okay? Or you don't understand the context because this other thing has happened at an adjacent command, you know, with our, say, our East Coast uh, mirror uh, unit out of Paris Island, South Carolina. They may have just had something happen that this commander doesn't know. Okay. And so it's being able to say, hey, I think you're good. But I would just phrase it this way. Uh, and then, you know, after there's a meeting, if there's relevant feedback from, say, the boss to me that I think the commander needs to know, I'm going to call the commander and I'm probably going to say, hey, 
Uh, just know here's what here's what hit on target and here's what missed uh, in what you, in what you brief. Um, if that wasn't clear, uh, you give some kind of cue though, so that they can improve their relationship uh, and their interactions over time. And you do the same thing with the staff. So those kernels over time, we built up trust with one another. And, you know, everybody comes in and they plop in the chair and they just start, well, hey, here's my issue. Here's my concern. And you become the sounding board for all kinds of things. And through that, you're now able to act as that confidant to the commander because you are tracking what is everybody's strengths and weaknesses? Uh, what are their challenges? What stuff are they going through outside of work? Um, and then you, without betraying anybody's individual trust, you've got to know what do other people need to know in order to make the organization operate more effective. And how do you balance? So I, I ran into this as chief of staff where people would come to me and they would use me as a soundboard or they would actually be confiding in me in some in some cases. And I would have to say, okay, I want to build this relationship, but I also, part of my job is to pass relevant and helpful data points to my principal as well, but I didn't want to betray trust. So it was always kind of a, a balancing act of, okay, I have to I have to do both of these things at once. Did you, um, how did you approach doing that? Um, I, I think it just comes down to, you know, like I said, by the time you get into the position as a, on the military side, as a colonel and a senior colonel, you've interacted enough with enough people to have a pretty good sense of, does my boss need to know this? Is this relevant? Uh, and a lot of times it's not. But if it helps put things into the proper light, mm. particularly if it does so to the to the benefit or in the interest of the person that, who is going through something that maybe explains why they were a little bit off and what things they're going through, then that's something that, you know, the commander may, may hear, but it's nobody else needs to hear. Sure. Yeah. And I would have the, uh, another case where someone would be fired up about something. They would come to me and pound on the table and shout and scream and, you know, drop curse words and all these different things and say, Emily, like, we have to do something. Why doesn't our CEO do something? We have to talk to him. And I said, okay, you know, we have our, our meeting with him on Thursday. Let's kind of cool down a little bit, get ourselves situated, go in there, and I'll tee you up and you can explain the situation and then propose some solutions. And we get into that subsequent meeting and I tee it up and I turn it over and the person's like, nope, nope, we're fine. I don't have a problem. I'm not causing problems. And so part of my job was to say, okay, after that person left, hey, CEO, you know, here's here's the here's the summary of the conversation I had earlier this week. And I think it's relevant and salient to you to know this is going on in this one organization. So to kind of be that conduit where if people did have a problem speaking truth to power and relevant information wasn't getting through, the chief of staff could help convey information that way as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say in our context, you generally get to do that once, once. where you get everybody fired up to get a meeting, you get the meeting with the boss and then you say, no, nothing's wrong. Everything's great. Oof. You don't get to, you don't get to do that again. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not saying you're, you're not going to be fired that because you just can't do that very easily. Um, but what I mean is you're going to go through more of a process the next time 
where I'll tell you, we can have the meeting, we'll get set up for the meeting, but we're going to sit down and speak before the real meeting. Hey, what are the slides? What are the products? What are we going to talk through? Just an informal, you know, from principal to principal and say, okay, yeah, I think all of that is relevant and that's going to resonate. And that's where you're going to say, hey, we still have the meeting, but you don't need 45 minutes. We'll do it. Or you get 20. All right, let's be efficient about it. We don't need all this other background stuff and just cut to the chase. So it's helping them to tailor their stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that everything can get done a little bit faster because there's too much stuff going on to get all of the background on, particularly at the level of you know the CEO, the commander general, commander general. So you mentioned you were in charge of operations, and in your world, oper- you know the infrastructure you're talking about. I you know we have like labor unions, religious support, legal, um, mm-hmm. lots of lots of direct and indirect things that are happening. Just running that infrastructure and those operations, can you just Give us a handle on what that meant in your role, because like many chiefs of staff, you had to have knowledge of various aspects of the business and be able to bring those things all together. Yeah, certainly. Well, well, I would correct, because in this capacity, I was never the director of operations. We had a colonel that that did that, that would run operations largely of recruit training. That was really the primary focus of it, and a lot of base events, uh, because I Maybe you don't think about it all that much, but 42 weeks a year, uh, we graduate Marines from boot camp. Okay. Uh, and so that means we're going to have anywhere from 1,000 to 3,200 family members showing up every week onto the installation where you've got to, how are you going to search all the vehicles? How are you going to ensure, uh, you know, uh, there's there's food, water, activities. There's, uh, if anybody's going to throw a um, they do it correctly, right? You know, any of those things. This is things, family like day, right? This is where people come. This is family day and okay. graduation. They're going to coordinate all of that stuff. Okay. What presentations are the families getting? How is it all going to go? Uh, and they're going to handle all those visitors. They're going to handle coordination for all of the uh, congressional delegations and senators and everybody else that's going to come and, and visit uh, and want to see, hey, what's going on with X, Y, and Z. So operations is going to do that. So what you end up with, as the chief of staff, or at least in, in my experience, in my case, uh, was like our, our provost marshal, who's our chief of police, uh, reported directly to me. Okay, so we had as many as 130 uh, military and federal law enforcement that are at the depot to provide security for the installation, right? And so um, I ended up uh, working a lot with them as far as who would get access, who didn't get access. You know, if a family member pops for a warrant as they're coming through the gate, do you still let them come to the graduation? How do you handle that? Um, you know, th- there are law enforcement incidents in, out in town that happen on the base. That's you deal with that. Uh, but then I also would own a lot of the things that can get a commander in trouble. Okay, so... I would say things like all of our family program stuff uh, came in and re- report up through me. A lot of the safety, uh, sexual assault prevention and response, uh, domestic violence, because uh, you know we've got eleven thousand folks and they're spread out all over the country. Uh, so all of those things would come to me, and I would sit on the uh, on the boards. I would be the chairperson for all the different 
committees that would handle those sensitive issues. Because the commander themselves be present at all those things. Sure. But it's got to have a commander level of interest. So in our case, as the chief of staff, you ended up sitting in on all of those uh, programs and making sure, are they operating uh, properly or is everybody being supported properly? And then uh, getting into the analysis of the data that tells us, are we using these resources uh, appropriately? If, if people say there's a demand for uh, counselors, okay, for uh, we have a, a large number of social workers that are able to do family counseling and couples counseling and things like that. If people are saying uh, we need more of them, well, okay, give me an analysis of how many clinical hours each of our people is able to provide each month and how many are being used. And if it's most of them are only executing 40% of their clinical hours, yeah. well, then who's not getting it? Who's being left without an appointment because we have the space? And so let's fix it if that's a, if that's a problem. So you get a lot of really odd things that you deal with and you throw in things like uh, protocol because you have so many visitors coming uh, for formal events and local leaders uh, that it seems mundane sometimes that who's sitting where and who gets who gets to meet the general directly and who gets to those are big those are big deals though those, that's a big deal when they when they go wrong <laughs> uh, it becomes it becomes an issue so it's watching over some of that stuff as well. It's giving guidance to the young, the younger officers that are part of that. We would call it the inner circle of the command deck, uh, the personal assistant, the aide de camp to the commander, the a chief of staff for us has someone called a staff secretary. Okay, it works directly for the chief of staff, and they are going to be the one that is primarily focused on correspondence, policy, orders. Um, the standard operating procedures, things like this. And so one of the roles we'll have is every single piece of correspondence or directive or letter that's going to go to the commanding general to be signed is going to go through the staff secretary first to make sure it's all correct. Mm. And then it has everything it's supposed to have. And then it comes to me. And I'm the final review before it then goes in to the boss. And is that, is that, per, is that like a, a deputy chief of staff? Is that like a, an assistant? Uh, what type of function so you, is that? You, you, uh, for us, we go down to the training companies, uh, those young officers that are running Marines through boot camp, and you find a very cerebral, talented, well-spoken young captain oh, okay. who's generally going to be late 20s or early 30s, uh, and they're going to get pulled up, uh, and they're going to be your right-hand person. And uh, I was exceptionally blessed uh, with the staff secretary that was a uh, young guy, uh, just brilliant. Uh, in between all the work he was doing for us, he was studying uh, law to the point that he took the, it was the patent law exam and passed it. So he passed the bar for patent law. He's never been to law school. He's at law school now, but he was a, uh, he was a brilliant guy. That becomes kind of your right-hand person. Yeah. And tell us, you had a great story about family day and how you, how you had people actually walk through the experience of that. But just briefly, can you touch on that? Because I, I thought it was good. Well, what I'd say is that there's, um, it's a very predictable place, boot camp. It's, it's, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. 
things happen again and again and again. They've always been that way. And this is how we do it. And it goes on for decades. And so as a group, it's easy to become nose blind to the things that are, that are going on around you. And, uh, family day, you have thousands of eager family members that are out there interacting with their Marines and they want to, they want to talk to people. If you're permanent personnel, sometimes that's, sometimes that kind of bothers some because you're trying to get from point A to point B. You got a lot going on and you don't want to sit doing something wrong or they're going to fail to salute or because they're nervous and they're, they're not in a structured space anymore. So you end up stopping a lot, interacting with people and some people at the time, it's just try to avoid that. So they wouldn't go out and walk around and see what was happening on family day. They just assumed it was going correct. And it was for the most part. But I would see little things that I, as I was walking around, because I would walk around and say, well, why are we doing it? So why aren't we doing why? And you'd hear, well, this is the way we've always done it. Hmm. We've done it like, we've done it like this for a decade or more and nobody's complained. So why would we change it? So, all right. Who's going to complain though so, in that situation? Well, yeah. Parents <laughs> aren't going to be like, know, hey. Parents are there to pick up their kid and, and take them home. And so they're not generally going to complain. So just decided that one day, I said, okay, everybody, uh, we took all the deputies for the different units uh, and the staff officers. And we said, okay, you're going to be present at 745 in front of the theater. Uh, you're going to be in civilian clothes. You can have one small bottle of water. Uh, and that's it. Beyond that, you have to get water where the families get water. You can only use the restrooms that the families can use. You're going to go to all the briefings and we're just going to go through family day and and let's see what comes of it. When we got done with that, we came back together. It was, it was amazing. Everybody's look, wow, that was terrible. <laughs> those, those briefs made no sense. I don't understand why you're doing that. I couldn't hear the speaker. Uh, yeah. So the sound was bad. The lighting was bad. Why did we move? A to point B, that makes no sense. Uh, if I was a parent, I wouldn't have wanted to stand out here uh, all that time. That's too long. So now everybody understood the problem. They all felt strongly about the problem and they wanted to fix it. And they did. So the family day of the last two years, uh, while thematically, familiar to someone who had come long ago is executed much differently. And I think it works a heck of a lot better. And that was because people got to develop the solution on their own. Uh, they understood the problem clearly and they went after it in their lanes. You know, our communications guys were immediately, how do we fix the sound system in our theater? Uh, how do we get the lighting right? How do we fix this building? It, it all just worked out, uh, really quickly once everybody saw the issue. Having them walk through the actual day as a parent. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that there's mm -hmm. there's lots of gems of, of wisdom in there. One thing I want to touch on is a, a lot of times people hear uh, like colonel, like military, marine colonel, mm -hmm. and they have they instantly have this picture, or maybe it's a stereotype of, a, of someone in their head. And I just want to compare kind of, you know, talk about, maybe a military leader in like the Vietnam era or maybe back in, you know, back in the 60s and then a military leader now, how, you know, are those just generational differences? Is there fundamental differences? Have the branches of military done different things? Give us your insight on that. 
Well, okay. And that's a, that's a broad one. I can only speak to my experience. Sure. Uh, you know, when I was a young officer, when I first came in, colonels, a lot of them had been in, in Vietnam. They were still around. Okay. They were young officers or young enlisted uh, Marines in Vietnam. And so they were still there. Uh, you know, so I'll say, boy, they sure looked a lot older than uh, colonels do today. Um, you know, because they don't have the youthful exuberance, uh, certainly that I have, but I, I think there might've been some generational differences, um, more than there were service differences. I mean, things have changed. My generation was shaped by 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And, uh, you know, young Marines today are every bit as capable as the Marines who came before, every bit as tough, but they're just different. They communicate different. Um, you know, I, the way you remember things, oftentimes you have to pause and say, is that how it really happened or is that just how I remember it? But I remember when I was younger, colonels, particularly chiefs of staff, were very dour old, angry guys, usually. Um, and now, look, there's still some of those out there, but they're all different shapes and sizes. Um, I generally judged success by, were people joking around? Were people laughing? Uh, were there smiles on the staff? Uh, who's staying late? That's not a sign of success. That's a sign of inefficiency. Mm. Um, so the stereotype that people have, uh, a lot of times it's based on Jack Nicholson and, uh, in a few good men. You can't handle the truth. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a little hard to get away from. Uh, so, you know, people see that. And that's one of the things I'll tell you that I'm, I experience now is I'm, I'm actively in the job search realm is that people have a stereotype of what they think yeah. yes. a, a Marine colonel is. And God bless them for it. They respect us and they think very highly of us. But unless they serve in the military in the 20 years, they probably don't actually know what a colonel is like. And I would say that we're all different. Of course. There's some, there's some common traits in there. Uh, but people tend to think of a very, a very wooden, authoritarian, uh, very stern person doesn't smile a lot, uh, and that's that's just not that's not the case. I think that's accurate though. That's people's perception. And then I I, I asked that question because as I was talking to you, I mean, certainly you have you, you can tell you're in the Marines for thirty years. You have a military bearing, but you're yeah. energetic and driven and compassionate and empathetic, and you're all these different things. Where it's like mm, my my the stereotype on this is not, is not matching, which I think is a good thing. So yeah, we're remarkably lifelike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like you're real people. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. So, uh, yeah. So you, you do see a lot of that and uh, yeah. you've just got to use the same skills that I think you use out in the corporate world. Uh, you know, you can't shout at people. Much. Right. Uh, I don't know that I ever did as the chief of staff because uh, you shouldn't have to. Mm -mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it is very different. And, you know, as a military chief of staff, I'm dealing with uh, employees unions. I'm dealing with uh, finance and payroll and how do we manage to book 
um, uh, deal with facilities and infrastructure and uh, going out to meet with all the local leadership at receptions in the evening to you know press the flesh and get the message out there it's speaking to teachers to get them to understand what the military is and isn't yeah uh, so so that they can encourage their students so it's a lot of different things that are present in the corporate world they're present in different businesses it's the same facet uh but what you typically or what i get a lot of is people say you've had a fascinating career done some amazing things but you don't really have any experience in what we do. Mm. So we don't have a job for it. And you're like, well, let's have a talk. And you may find out that I've so done many a intangibles lot more. though that you bring. Yeah. Mm, I would question that. Yeah. So many yeah. X factor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's it's funny you mentioned um you can't yell at people because the the Marine Colonel I was referring to at the beginning of the call, he would say, I would say, did you park orders at people? Did you yell at people a lot? Da, 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 were you in charge? And he was like, you actually don't want to yell at someone. The only times you want to yell, he said, was when you're um, chasing uh, a woman to give her her purse back or when you're preventing someone from getting run over in the street. And so he was kind of older, older school, but he was like, you got to be, you know, doing something nice and giving giving something back to someone or saving their life um, in those situations. So it was funny yeah. that you mentioned that. Um, yeah. But I know we're I know we're coming up on time, and you've been so generous to round us out. I just wanted to pull up my copy of Meditations uh, by Marcus Aurelius because uh, oh, I know you're a fan. Here we go. Oh my goodness, there we go. And I have I don't know, kind of I have so many gems from this book, and I try to read it a couple different times. But there's just so much good stuff in here. I knew that you were you were a fan, and with. that's. You know, the thing you had asked me uh, uh, earlier or before we had spoken a little bit um, about what books instead of read for inspiration on leadership. And I tend to go more towards those, okay, towards meditations, towards uh, uh, Thucydides and Peloponnesian Wars and, and some of the classical philosophers. And that's because none of the stuff we're facing is new. Mm-hmm. And so when you get that through your mind, that it's not an Put the emergency in context and put the stuff that's happening and the chaos in context and realize this has been dealt with before. People have gone through these same events. How do we get ourselves through it? Okay. And so just take a breath and let's, let's figure this out. Um, and so that's just where I've, I've gotten it. And uh, I think as far as, you know, leadership inspiration, it's just from been it's been watching the people around me over the last 30 years of all ranks mm-hmm. and discovering, I like the way she does that. I like the way he does that. Uh, I don't like this. I don't care for that person's briefing style at all. And you, you figure this stuff out. And, and so I feel fairly, you get to a pretty good spot of confidence as far as your leadership style by this point. Yeah. I love that you love Marcus Aurelius. And I think along with the greater Stoic philosophy, it's, you know, what is in your control and what is not and making the distinction between the two and then placing your focus on um, on the things that you can control as well. So uh, yeah. with that, we'll end with with Marcus Aurelius. I've never done that in a podcast, but um, yeah, winning. There we go. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being generous with your time and information. And I know I've learned a lot from this conversation with you. Um, and I will uh, I will pass along my thanks from from the listeners as well. So thank you very much, Ed. Thank you very much, Emily. It's a pleasure to be with you. All the best to you.
Take care. If you'd like some more information on the topic discussed in this episode, head over to nextlevel.coach and click on the resources page for some helpful free downloads.